All right, guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Drew. I'm excited to be back this morning teaching God's Word. It's been about a month since I've gotten to stand up in front of you guys and, and teach, and this is one of my favorite things to do. So I'm looking forward to opening Psalm 1 with you. We are continuing a short mini-series through a few of Jordan and I's favorite psalms. And so this morning we are looking at Psalm 1. So if you want to turn in your Bible with me there, the book of Psalms is about halfway right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. So, maybe you're not immediately feeling this way after I read that, but I think that as we begin to think about Psalm 1, one of the feelings that we're going to have is we're going to be a little bit shocked. And I think that's because the air that we breathe in our culture is one of cultural relativism, where basically people believe that each person is entitled to their own way of pursuing happiness. And what this psalm is actually going to say to us is that God is the only true source of happiness. The only place where we are going to be lastingly satisfied and made happy is not by looking within ourselves, seeing what our desires are, and then living according to those desires. The way that we will find happiness is by living according to what God desires for us. And so I think as we look at this truth in Psalm 1, it's going to be a little bit like having a conversation with somebody from a foreign country. Okay, so I remember my wife, Melissa, had planted these tomato plants in our backyard behind our house, and we had a neighbor who was from a different country. And what's true about people from different countries is often, I kind of like this, they're more blunt than Americans, right? And so this woman came into our house, and Melissa was having a conversation with her, just kind of a casual conversation, and mentioned to her that she had planted these tomato plants in our backyard. And this woman went and opened up our back door, and I was in the room, and she looks out at the tomato plants, and she goes, those tomato plants suck. (laughs) And Melissa kind of paused, and I kind of caught my breath. It was shocking, right? And Melissa said, oh, 
really, why do you say that? And she's like, well, they're small. It looks like you need to water them more. And, and we went on to have this conversation. But anyway, her whole way of approaching that was so, in a way, un-American, right? Because the way that we, as Westerners, typically approach that conversation, even if we thought the tomato plants were terrible, we would say, oh, they look great. When did you plant them? Right? We lie about what we really think about things instead of just telling the whole truth about it. And I think we're going to have a similar experience as that conversation that my wife had with that woman as we look at the Bible. It's going to be a little bit shocking to us, a little bit foreign to us to see that the Bible says something so countercultural that God is the only source of lasting happiness. So we're going to see the cause of unhappiness, the source of true happiness, and the two destinies of humanity. First of all, we're going to see the cause of unhappiness. So again, we're looking at Psalm 1, verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So the first word in the psalm is blessed. Very simply put, it means happy. And the first thing it says about a happy person is what they don't do. But it doesn't start with outward actions. It actually starts with who we receive advice from. The first thing it says about the unhappy person, in other words, the cause of their unhappiness, is that they walk in the counsel of the wicked. Instead of listening to God's word and his ways and delighting in those things, instead, we begin to listen to the counsel of those around us. So the question that we have is who are the wicked? I think immediately when we think of wicked, we apply moral categories. So we think wicked people are people who do bad things and righteous people are people who do good things. And that is present throughout Scripture, but I think the more present category in Scripture when it comes to separating the wicked and the righteous is actually not a moral category at all. It's a relational category. So you remember, Jesus summarized the entire law with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he quickly tagged on, love your neighbor as yourself. So when the Bible makes this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, it's not primarily talking about actions as much as it's talking about a relationship with God. It's talking about love for God. The wicked are those who have no relationship with God and no love for God. In other words, the wicked are people who are trying to find their happiness apart from God. So the counsel of the wicked, although comes in various forms, is always the same. You can be happy apart from God. The root cause of all of the unhappiness in your life and in my life is that we seek for happiness 
in the wrong place. Here's the thing about humanity. We, in our natural selves, know nothing about where happiness comes from. Left to our own devices, we will always pursue happiness apart from God and will find ourselves empty. Anyone ever experienced that before? Anyone ever thought, this is going to bring me life. This is finally this relationship, this toy, this thing, this hobby. That's what's finally going to fulfill me. And then found that it was lacking. I think there's sort of a religious or a moral way to pursue happiness apart from God. And there's also sort of a worldly way of pursuing it. I think in general terms, religious people will tell you that the way that you can be happy is by being one of the good people, by following the rules, by being moral, by paying your bills, by showing up at work on time, by keeping your hands clean and not being one of those people. And the worldly way of pursuing happiness in general terms is do what you desire. Seek after your pleasure. You feel it, you do it. You want to experience it, go for it. Don't live according to the norms of the world. Do what you want to do. Be you. Look inside of yourself. See what you desire. Live that out. That's where you'll find happiness. This is what the people around you will tell you. But I I found that people know as much about where to find happiness as they know about how to fix cars. Have you guys ever asked someone to help you fix your car? I've talked to a few people in my life who have claimed to me to be experts on fixing cars, and it's always gone bad. So one time, I had a friend who was actually formerly an engineer for Ford. So I thought, okay, this is good. And I drove a Ford. Like, this is great. So the alternator went out on my Ford, and I was just going to take my Ford into the mechanic and have them put a new alternator in. But this guy said, I know all about how to replace your alternator. And I said, okay, let's do it. And so... I was able to drive my car over to his house, and we opened up the hood, and we began to try, first step, right, to take the alternator out of the car. But what we figured out is that there's a lot of other pieces that you have to take out before you can take the alternator out. So, long story short, he ends up with a crowbar under my hood, trying to pry my alternator out of the car, and ends up breaking off a different piece of my car. I don't know what it was called. I don't know anything about cars. He was supposed to be helping me. But it seemed like he knew something about cars. So when he gave me some advice and said he would help me, I began to follow his leadership. But it turns out he knew as little as I did. And when it comes to finding happiness... Your neighbor will be absolutely no help to you, left to their own devices. We know as little about finding happiness 
as most of us do, about fixing cars. We know almost nothing about it. And maybe the most dangerous of us are those who think that we know where happiness is found. You see, what the psalm leads us to next, it doesn't just give us sort of the negative side, right? The negative side is, okay, watch out for the counsel of the wicked. They're going to lead you away from finding your joy and satisfaction in God. It actually shows us where we need to go to find happiness. And whereas we, as people of the world, are bad counselors, God's word proves true. And it leads us to the source of true happiness. Okay, after this sort of has been uncovered, can't find our happiness apart from God, the blinders are taken off, we're ready to come to the source of true happiness. Psalm 1, verses 2 through 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now this is an interesting phrase for most of us. Okay, the source of true happiness is to delight in the law of the Lord. Now, when most of us think about the law, we do not get feelings of happiness. I think when most of us think about the law, we think about rules, and we're Americans, we don't like rules, and so we don't think of delight. We dread the law. So our question is, how is the psalmist encouraging us to delight in the law of the Lord? What would make the law of God a delight? Well, first of all, we have to understand how he's using this phrase, the law of the Lord. So the law of the Lord in the Old Testament is shorthand for the Bible, for the Word of God. At this point in Israel's history, they had the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah or the law. And so when he's talking about delighting in the law of the Lord, yes, he is talking about the Ten Commandments and the 600 other commandments listed in those books, but he's also talking about the entire context of those books. Let me give you just a general outline of what happens in the Torah so that you can rightly understand the place of God's law in redemptive history. Okay, so God creates the world. He says that it's very good. He creates men and women in his image. And he tells them, don't eat from that one tree. You can eat from any of the other trees, but don't eat from that one tree. Satan comes along, tempts them. They eat from that one tree. 
And as a result of them eating from that one tree, the world is shattered. It's broken. Which reveals how good people are at obeying God's law. Not very good. Easy commandment. They couldn't even do that one. So the whole world is broken. And people are far from God and they're in rebellion against God. And you fast forward from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12. And God shows up seemingly out of nowhere to a guy named Abram. And he begins to make Abram this promise. If you will trust me, you will be right in my eyes. Trust me. Trust me that I'll take care of you. That I'll make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that through your offspring, I will bless the nations. And it says, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, God credited goodness to Abram's account, not because he was good, but because he trusted in God. And so he was made righteous in God's sight. And then, from the time that God made Abram this promise, you are righteous in my sight by faith, until the law was given, from Genesis 12 to Exodus 20, was 430 years. And after 430 years, of God establishing on the earth that the way to have relationship with him was by faith, not by obeying the rules. He gave the Ten Commandments and many other laws. And the reason, Scripture says, that God did it in that order was to show us that by obeying the rules, no one will be made righteous in God's sight. And from that point on, people have misunderstood how to be in relationship with God. One of the most common conversations I have had with people over the years, I've been in ministry for almost 15 years now, one of the most common conversations I've had and one of the most prevalent struggles in my own heart is this belief that's deep-seated, I think, in all of us that the only way to be accepted with God is to do what he says. And so a lot of us live with guilt and we live with shame because we have been unable to keep God's rules. Now, I was reminded of this in kind of a funny way this week. Okay. My wife is super on top of things, and so she's teaching our kids how to be responsible and teaching them about money as well. And I've kind of, you know, jumped in on this thing. And so what she's making is chore charts. And so we have six kids. But many of you know our youngest has been in the hospital since he was born. And so I'm watching my wife put together these chore charts, and I noticed that she had made a chore chart 
for our hospitalized son, (laughs) Jude. And so, of course, I took this opportunity to make fun of her, right? So she's got like, you know, on the left side of the chore chart, it says to do. And on the right side of the chore chart, it says done. And then she's got all these little magnets like that say vacuum the house or clean the toilet. I'm like, are you serious? You made a chore chart for our son. The only thing on his list of things to do should be breathe. (laughs) Right? Like, stay alive. Like, he's been in really bad shape. I don't think that he needs a chore chart. I think he has a few more basic needs than that. And Melissa told me, as I was telling her that I was going to use this illustration, she told me that my son Luke had the same concern. He saw it. He didn't even hear me. He's like, Mom, are you serious? You're going to give Jude chores? This is unbelievable. Right? And here's the thing. We all know what Jude needs is oxygen. He needs to be held. He needs to be loved. We're not giving him any chores until he can walk and breathe and he's in relationship with us and he knows that we love him. Then, once he reaches a certain age, we'll give him responsibilities. You see, the reason that the psalmist is able to delight in the law of the Lord is he understands that before you can obey God's law, the foundation of your obedience has to be relationship with God. You see, a relationship with God is not established through your obedience. A relationship with God is established through faith. Do you know what that means? It means that God has always said, I love you because I love you. His love is not based on your performance. It's not based on your merit. It's not based on anything that you have done or have left undone. And we call that grace. He loves you just because he loves you. And when you begin to understand that you're secure and that you're part of his family, what begins to happen the scripture says, is there begins to be fruit in your life. The streams of water are the grace and the love and the mercy of God. It says, I love you just because I love you. And as you plant your life there, you begin to delight in that reality and you begin to understand that God is for you and not against you. What begins to happen over time, it happens more slowly than many of us would like it to happen, but there begins to be fruit produced in your life. It happens slowly and it happens organically. And there's two different things that the Bible represents that fruit as. One is your character begins to change. Many many of us have memorized the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When you know that you are secure in God, when you're delighting in Him and finding happiness in Him, the result will be that your character will begin to resemble His character. You will begin to love the way that He loves, and you will begin to be a more attractive person to be around. The second aspect of the fruit that God begins to produce in our lives when we delight in His grace and His love for us is the fruit of service. And these different ways that we serve God based on the gifts that He's given us are listed a number of different places in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to go back and read and look at those gifts of the Holy Spirit, I would welcome you to do that. Or you can go to Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 mentions these different ways in which we produce fruit in our lives through service, through prophecy, or speaking words of encouragement, through leadership, through acts of service, through teaching, through giving, or through showing mercy. Here's the mistake many of us make. We forget to plant our lives by the streams of water. And we just go out and try to produce the fruit. That is as ridiculous as thinking that you can go out and duct tape apples to your oak tree in your backyard and that they will somehow continue to grow. You can't produce the fruit. The fruit is produced by the streams. The streams are the grace of God. And so if you feel stuck in your Christian life, the answer is not try harder. The answer is put your roots into the streams of God's word. Make this book your delight. And don't get stuck too easily. Some of us, it's like, we, we've worked on our Bible reading plan and we get to like First Chronicles and we're like, done. I wish the Bible ended here. And, and, or we get to some story that we don't understand about the Israelites going in and killing a bunch of people and we don't get it and we're confused and we're frustrated by that and so we put the Bible aside. That's what I say. Keep on digging. Keep on going. I love this quote by Rich Mullins. He says this, If God was as civilized as most Christian people think he is, he would be useless to Christianity. What you are going to run into in the Bible, in God, is someone who is beyond your comprehension. And if you will keep digging and keep delighting, you will find that is the best news in the world. So the source of true happiness is God himself. It's finding our delight in who he has revealed himself to be in his word. This is where we get to the tricky part, the shocking part, the part that I think troubles us a little bit. We get to the two destinies 
of humanity. We've talked about happiness and unhappiness. Now we're talking about where these two different paths lead. And the word therefore is going to transition us. Psalm 1, verses 5 through 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So word therefore, what it means is, based on everything that we've just said, that there is no happiness apart from God, that the only source of true and lasting happiness is God himself, based on that discovery, this is what follows. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Remember, the wicked, not primarily a moral category in Scripture, primarily a relational category. Those who do not have a relationship with God, who do not delight in His grace and in His ways, will not stand in the judgment. In other words, they will be condemned. Also, they will not be part of the congregation of the righteous. Where are the righteous congregating? Where will they be congregated? In heaven, forever, with God, in His presence. The wicked will not be there. And again, I think our minds go to, why not? Why has God set up things in such a way that if you refuse to find your happiness in Him, that you will be eternally cut off, eternally condemned. Now, it's interesting. There's passages in Scripture that talk about hell that are very forthright in talking about hell being God's just punishment for sin, that God is actively punishing people in hell for their sin and their refusal to accept his free gift of grace. We believe that. But what this passage does is something a little bit different. It talks about things in a little bit more of a passive way. So here's the reason that this scripture gives that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, that they will be condemned. Because, or for, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. See, it's relational. It's about a relationship. The reason that if you have relationship with God, you will not be condemned is because He knows you. He has relationship with you. He knows everybody. He knows what everybody's done. But this is a relational word. It's talking about him actually having relationship with you. 
And here's how screwed up our categories are, okay? When we think of life, we think of the fun things that we get to do and the people that we get to hang out with and the relationships we get to have and the food we get to eat and the fun activities we get to participate in. But the way that the Bible defines life, what life is, is to know God. Apart from God, there is no life. The New Testament describes people who are disconnected from God as being spiritually dead. So here's the reason primarily that people spend an eternity in hell. It's because they don't want anything to do with God. And at the end of the day, God says, if you don't want anything to do with me, then I will not make you have anything to do with me. But the very definition of the decision you are making is to cut yourself off forever from the source of true happiness. Now imagine the situation. Imagine there are a group of fish and they're having a conversation. And one fish says to the other fish, how amazing would it be to live in the top of a tree. I've heard that you can see for miles up there. And we're trapped here in this water. And I've seen birds that have swooped down and grabbed some of our friends and carried them up to the nest. And I've heard that those fish are the happiest fish in the world. So this fish begins to try to convince the other fish that all of them should jump out of the water onto the shore, wait for that bird to come swoop, pick them up, and take them to the top of the nest. Fish are like, I don't know. It's pretty comfortable here. It's pretty nice. I don't know if I want to do that. So this fish, he convinces a few other fish, and they jump out, and there's one fish of this friend group who decides to stay in the water and not trust his stupid fish friend. And these four or five fish, they jump out. Sure enough, bird picks them up, scoops them up, takes them to the nest, puts them at the top. Another fish jumps out of the water, hears them yelling, hears them saying, we can see for miles. This is amazing. We were right. Why didn't we do this earlier? That fish begins to swim around again. Swim around, swim around, swim around. Jumps out of the water again. Doesn't hear anything. Jumps out of the water. Again, doesn't hear anything. Jumps out of the water again. Doesn't hear anything. It's because a fish can't live outside of the water. Maybe for a short time, they could enjoy the view. But by definition, God has made fish to live in water. Likewise, God has made you for relationship with him. You might hear people around you saying, check out the view from up here. This is awesome. This is amazing. Let me warn you. The prosperity that you see around you, that the Psalms are very aware of. You want to read about it? Read through Psalm 73. 
The psalmist in that psalm is lamenting the prosperity of the wicked. Why are the wicked prospering? They're prospering like those fish. It's so short-lived. But in the end, they will perish. In the end, prosperity is only found in relationship with God. So here's the question. How can we be reconciled with God? How can our relationship with God be made right when we see the sin in our own lives? We need constant reminders of this, don't we Christians? And for those of you who may never heard it before, Galatians 3 verses 13 through 14 describes how our relationship with God is restored. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I said earlier, Abraham was put in right relationship with God through faith. He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. How do we get that same blessing that Abraham got? We trust that Jesus' death on the cross is the only means by which we can be made right with God. See, when you look at the law of God, the way that that turns from your condemnation into your delight is you see that the blessed man that Psalm 1 is describing is Jesus. Notice, the man that Psalm 1 describes is singular. The sinners are all plural. Blessed is the man. There's only been one righteous man. You're not him. I'm not him. His name is Jesus. And he has taken our place on the cross. What he did on the cross is what we deserve. What we get if we trust in what he has done on the cross for us is what he deserved. You can be blessed. You can be happy, not through your own merit, but through Jesus. And then, as you begin to sit next to that stream. God sends his Holy Spirit to live in you and you begin to produce fruit in your life. Look to Jesus. He's the blessed man. He's where you'll find life. He will change you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Psalm 1. Thank you that you speak hard words to us, that you don't allow us to search for our happiness apart from you, unchecked. But in your grace, you gave us this book that in all the insanity of the world, we can crack it open. We can read your words. We can receive life from you as we delight in what we see. 
I ask that you would clear away confusion, that you would come through your Holy Spirit, that you would bring clarity, that you are a God of grace, that you desire relationship with us first, and that out of that relationship will flow obedience. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.